This is episode 208 of That Shakespeare Life. Our show this week is equipped with detailed show notes that bring you in-depth history research and visual content that doesn't fit on the audio of our episode. You can unlock these extras right now as a patron of That Shakespeare Life, and you can sign up at castycash.com slash episode 208. That's castycash.com slash EP 208. And stay tuned after the episode because I'll share more details. And the travel writings were probably the things that um, made him most popular in the period, actually. His wonderful adventures on the road. And some of them really were crazy, even more than the walk to Scotland. One was the the maddest one of all. He made a a boat out of brown paper with no metal or wood and said he would row it down the River Thames. Of course, thousands of people lined the banks to see what was going to happen. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. John Taylor is a poet contemporary to Shakespeare, but with a decidedly unique approach to the writing profession. John Taylor trained professionally as a waterman or a river worker who taxied passengers to and from city destinations on the rivers like the River Thames in London. John Taylor used his occupation as a waterman to talk with the various playwrights, actors, and patrons while they were on the boat with him between destinations. Over the years, John Taylor used what he learned from these conversations to craft himself into a poet with the purpose of reinventing the unglamorous and ridiculed 16th century opinion of the profession of waterman into a more glorified occupation by naming himself the water poet. Taylor's work did manage to earn him a position of leadership in the Waterman's Guild, and he would write elegies for not only James I, but John Taylor was the first person to write about the death of William Shakespeare when he wrote a poem mentioning the bard in 1620. Here today to tell us about the life and exploits of this truly unique character from the life of William Shakespeare is our guest, Bernard Capp. Bernard Capp was born in 1943 at Leicester, England, and educated at Oxford from 1962 to 68. He taught in the history department of the University of Warwick for 52 years from 1968 to 2020. Bernard is now emeritus professor of history there. He is also a fellow of the British Academy and has published seven books on early modern English history, mainly with Oxford University Press, with an eighth coming out this year on British slaves and Barbary corsairs, along with numerous articles and essays. You can find links to Bernard's work on Amazon and in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Bernard. Welcome to the show. Hello, Cassidy. Great to be here. What was the waterman's station in society? I mean, were these high-class individuals or did the job hold a particularly high esteem, for example? No, more like the opposite. It's a rather low-status low occupation. Um, the watermen were notorious for being loud and quarrelsome and very rough and ready, sometimes drunk. But they had very strong opinions. They were opinionated and would hold forth to their passengers, whatever their status. The equivalent would be, I guess, um, very much like uh, taxi drivers, cab drivers today, um, with a similar 
culture, in a sense, of being independent and they would say and do their own thing. So what made John Taylor want to become a poet? I mean, we look at his history and he was heavily invested in Waterman's guilds and in this industry. Was he intending to change professions when he took up literature? It's a strange story, really, because, I mean, he didn't have very much education. He left school at the age of about 11 or 12, only moved to London at that point. He knew that, well, poetry was not really a profession that brought in much in the way of money, just like today, in fact. So it'd be very difficult to make a career as a professional poet in, in that period. You could only even hope to do it if you won the, the patronage from the king or some member of the royal family. He, he did try that, but there was never really much chance, given his sort of status and background. He might have made a very modest career, perhaps, writing ballads, but he, he wanted to be more than just a, what he called a rhymester, a balladeer. He wanted to be a, taken as a serious poet. So I suppose when he was going to and fro on, in his rowing boat, he'd have met writers, actors and so forth, um, people going to the theatres, to the playhouses. And he, he says he always liked reading, reading everything and anything, and he tells us that he, one day he suddenly got an itch to try writing himself and discovered he had a, a natural talent for it. And it took off from there. And I guess it was the, the, the novelty of a waterman writing poetry that helped launch him as a, as a poet as a, in terms of getting things published and becoming well-known, just as it might today if a, a cab driver suddenly published a book of poetry. Now, remind us which publication you're talking about here when we're saying that John Taylor is telling us this. What did he write that cataloged this information? His first piece was a, a, a little pamphlet called The Sculler, and he, ex he explains there how he's trying to turn from sculler, that's another word for uh, rower, oarsman, into a scholar, <laughs> a person who's into the world of poetry and literature. So he gives a few biographical details then, but um, I don't think he was thinking that he could, well, I suppose he, he, his dream might be to make a, a career, make a, a livelihood out of writing poetry. But it was more, I think, want, wanting to get his writing out there to be accepted, to be, to be recognised as a poet. So how did John Taylor come to be on an expedition with the Earl of Essex? Well, he was a waterman. He'd spent seven years as an apprentice waterman, and then he was part of the waterman's company. England was at war in the 50, all through the 1590s. The famous Spanish Armada was 1588, but the, the war with Spain carried on for the next 15 years, mainly being fought at sea. And when the Queen set out a, a naval expedition against Spain or Spanish commerce and the Spanish treasure fleets, that they would draft or dragoon literally hundreds or, yes, hundreds of, of watermen to help crew the naval warships. And so it was on that basis that Taylor was drafted into the Navy for a couple of expeditions, in one in 1596 un under the Earl of Essex against Cadiz in Spain, a raid on Cadiz, and another one the following year to the islands, the, the Azores in the, the Atlantic. That, that was before he'd started writing, so we don't know much in the way of details of his uh, adventures in war. It would have been fascinating <laughs> if he'd written his memoirs. Now, we know John Taylor held a leadership position with the King's Watermen under James I, but 
what exactly was the purpose of the king having his own watermen? Was that related to you know, the navy and the military, or? And and I guess I'm wondering whether or not John Taylor would have had direct access to the king for being a part of this group. Well, the king, the royal family, has sometimes travelled by uh, on the water up and down the River Thames or across the River Thames. They had a, a royal barge. And they would need, uh, I don't know, a dozen or so, 20 oarsmen to, to row the, the royal barge. And the important thing was, you know, I was saying that the, the, the watermen were a pretty rough breed. So the, the king would want rowers who were respectable and reliable and not drunk. And Taylor was, well, had already been recognised, I think, by some of his passengers, fringe courtiers and so forth, uh, as different from the usual watermen relatively polite, relatively, you know, in, in, clearly very intelligent. So that got him recommended as, as a, one of the king's watermen. It, it was, wasn't full-time because the king wasn't always travelling by barge. So you got a, an annual fee, you got a royal livery, that's a kind of uniform, and you were paid each time there was an occasion when the king or the queen or maybe a foreign ambassador was going to travel by barge. In 1612, the playhouses moved from the South Bank to the North Bank of the Thames in London. Bernard, how did this decision impact the Waterman business and John Taylor specifically? Well, it was a big blow for him and for all the Watermen because, um, as you say, the, the theatres, the playhouses were on, on, the, on the South Bank in, in what's called Southwark. So they attracted thousands of, of, of customers and most of those would have been crossing by water. So when the playhouses moved to North London, all that all that business just disappeared. I mean, the, the watermen were not totally ruined because they also carried passengers upriver and downriver, say from the, the, the city near the Tower of London up to Whitehall and Westminster. So you know, it wasn't just across the river, it was up and down. But even so, it, it was a, a big blow to their trade. The South Bank still did live on as, as a, uh, a popular centre. The theatres had gone, but there were still things like uh, bear baiting episodes, sports like that, um, fencing matches. Um, and the red light district, the brothel district, was on, on the South Bank because it was outside the authority of the Lord Mayor of London. So there was much less in the way of control or policing. It was much more free and easy, if you like, on the South Bank. So one final point there is, of course, that the, the population of London itself was growing at a huge rate in this period and sort of doubled in size. So even if people were no longer going to the theatres there, just the, the routine business of, of uh, people on the South Bank crossing over to the, to the north and, and opposite would be growing, helping to, to compensate for the loss of the, the theatre trade. While happening after Shakespeare's lifetime by about five years, John Taylor's writings detail a dispute the Watermen had with another disruptive innovation of the 17th century, the arrival of the horse and carriage. Bernard, how did the arrival of the coach impact the Watermen profession? It did have a, a big impact because, I, like I was just saying just now, the Watermen were taking passengers across to different parts of London, up river, down river, and these so-called hackney carriages. In London, they're still sometimes called hackney cabs. I don't know if that's the phrase that's used in the States. Not that I know of. <laughs> no. Um, yeah. It even says on the back of a London taxi, you know, a hackney cab. 
Oh, okay. So there's a, a real conflict of interest there. Because tra- travelling by water m- might sound a bit surprising, but it would be often quicker if the tide was going in the right direction to go sort of north-south. So the, the watermen saw this as a, a really hostile threat. And Taylor, t- Taylor became the, one of the leading officials in the watermen's company. He's one of the overseers. And they recognised that the rest of them recognised that he had, um, well, the gift of the gab. He could talk to polite people, educated people, courtiers. And so he more or less became their, their spokesman and their agent or lobbyist in trying to persuade the king and the leading ministers to, to suppress the, uh, the hackney cabs, hackney carriages. And he <laughs> presented various petitions and did several years of lobbying not wholly successful because the Hackney cabs are still going. <laughs> um, it, it gave him prominence, and of course that that gave him even more close contacts with the, the king and, and the royal family and other members of, of the Privy Council and the government. I, and I guess you mentioned that the Hackney cabs are still going. I'm going to ask. I assume water taxis are obsolete in London, or are there still some you can find there? Well, funny enough, they they had been obsolete for probably centuries, but something rather similar has has actually come back into practice in the the, the last sort of five, ten years. You can now get a a water boat that goes down down river and back up river, stopping off at a a number of points, which is actually, I mean, they're much bigger. They would carry perhaps 100 people or so. But some people now use them for for commuting from the, the suburbs to their office in central London. And it's a very nice way of traveling. <laughs> it sounds like a nice way to travel. I'm sure John Taylor is excited to see them make a comeback. Yeah. Yes, I went uh, two years ago. I went, was doing something at Greenwich, um, the Maritime Museum and, and so forth, and uh, went down by water on one of these, I forgot what they're called, the, the river equivalent, the taxes. And it's, yeah, yeah it, it's a much more enjoyable than the tube. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly so, a better view. <laughs> Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How did John Taylor succeed in his efforts to be a poet and, and this reinventing the reputation of the waterman in London? Did his writings and poems achieve any kind of notoriety during his lifetime? You mentioned he was kind of a, a novelty, but I wonder if someone like William Shakespeare would have known about him, for example. I think Shakespeare would have known about him. I mean, every, everybody had heard of John Taylor. I don't think Taylor actually knew Shakespeare. I'm sure he would have told us if he did know Shakespeare. He did get to know quite a lot of the playwrights and literary figures of the time, people like um, Samuel Rowlands, Thomas Decker, um, a number of others. And he he knew Ben Johnson. He sometimes called himself one of the sons of Ben, uh, Ben Johnson's circle of friends and acolytes. I think Taylor was right on the fringe, but at least they were acquaintances. Um, Did he succeed as a poet? Well, he became hugely famous. Well, when he travelled around England, wherever he went, he found people who had already heard of him, who knew some of his writings. So he was a kind of almost national celebrity in that sense. But he wasn't really respected as a serious poet in the way of, you know, Spencer or Sidney or Shakespeare and Johnson, indeed. And he found that very frustrating. He really wanted to be taken seriously. And the most amazing thing is that in 1630, he had he issued his collected works in a huge folio volume, and only only Shakespeare and Johnson 
had appeared in that format. Now, that doesn't actually mean that Taylor was seen as as the equal of Shakespeare and Johnson, but it, it does show just how ambitious he was to to win recognition, to win acceptance as a serious play. Oh, and, and your other point about the... Oh, yes, one final point on that. He found wherever he went, he found people who, who knew him or knew his writings. And the most amazing anecdote is that um, we have the text of a, a school play from the 1620s or so, you know, written by a, a school teacher in the province to, for the school boys to perform. And part of that play includes a little passage about John Taylor. And it's, the, the, the writer clearly assumed that the, the boys and their parents would know who he was, would be familiar with him, which is extraordinary. So he he did achieve quite a, a good deal of excess, success, at least in certain parts, which is which is remarkable considering yes. where he started. Yeah. Now, I know that Ben Johnson talked about taking a walk to Scotland, but I wonder if John Taylor did something similar. Did he did he also take a walk to Scotland? Well, he took a walk to Scotland in the very same year in, in 16, 1618. And it was very different from well, the king had gone the year before on a sort of grand visit. Johnson went to meet other poets and so on. Taylor went as a kind of adventure or stunt, really. He, he walked to Scotland, a long way to walk, and he said, I'm not taking any money and I will not ask anybody for food or accommodation on the way, which is quite a gamble. Is he going to die of starvation <laughs> on the road? And the gamble was that he's such a sociable, outgoing person that people who he met on the, on the road would get into conversation and would end up giving him food or accommodation. And the gamble was, if he got there, survived, and came back again, he would write up a story of his adventures on the road, and he persuaded something like a couple of thousand people, gentlemen and courtiers and all sorts, Londoners, to promise that they would then buy a copy of this at uh, you know above the average price, so he would make a profit out of it. And the gamble was, would he survive? <laughs> and of course he did. <laughs> he only, only had to spend one night sleeping rough. Every other night he found someone who would give him nice accommodation and a, a good dinner. That's fantastic. I can't believe he made it. I mean, just hearing that story, I'm, I worry for him like, oh my goodness, <laughs> is he going to make it back? <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was one of nature's optimists. <laughs> Absolutely. Isn't John Taylor known as one of the first ever war correspondents? Yes, the same year, 1618, a war broke out in, in Europe, continental Europe. It became known as the Thirty Years' War because it went on that long. And it was, it was over the throne of, of the crown of, of Bohemia. And uh, a man called Frederick, a German prince, had just been elected as king of Bohemia. It was a strange elective monarchy. And Frederick was a good Protestant, but he was also married to James, King James's daughter. So England had a, a kind of personal interest, if you like, in what was happening. And the English volunteers went out as soldiers to, to fight for this cause. And was, obviously people were wondering, what, what's happening? Is the news good or bad? What news do we have? And Taylor decided to go all the way to Prague in Bohemia to find out what was happening. And it was quite a bold journey. I mean, there's 
no, no phones, obviously. He didn't speak any foreign languages, no easy forms of transport. At one point, he tells us um, the guide refused to stay with him because it was too dangerous. And he ended up pushing his wheelbarrow with all his belongings, clothes and belongings, over a mountain pass. But he, he made it to, to Prague and met the king and the queen of Bohemia and uh, a baby called Prince Rupert, who later became very famous in the English Civil War period. And then came back and um, published his story. And he tells us that just walking through the streets of London, he was stopped every five yards by some passerby who would say, you know, tell us the news, what's happening, what's happening there? So he's got a sort of claim to be the first war correspondent. What a fascinating character. I know we would love to explore the life of John Taylor further and to look into some of these things that he did over the course of his life. What are some of your favorite books or resources you can recommend we use to learn more? Well, some of his travel writings have been republished and the travel writings were probably the things that um, made him most popular in the period, actually, his wonderful adventures on the road. And some of them really were crazy, even more than the walk to Scotland. One was the maddest one of all. He made a, a boat out of brown paper with no metal or wood and said he would row it down the River Thames. And of course, thousands of people lined the banks to see what was going to happen. Surely it would just sink. And the... The, the bottom of the boat obviously fell out straight away, but it fastened some inflated pig's bladders as buoyancy aids. So he rode down the River Thames half submerged, his feet and legs underwater, upper half of his body above water, and then got all the way down to the Thames estuary, the edge of the sea, and then, of course, wrote up a little pamphlet of, his, of the adventure. So had he lived in our time, he would have been a really successful television character. Absolutely. They'd make a reality show about him yeah. in a min minute. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, Bernard, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Well, Shakespeare and the Bible are on every desert island. There's a, a, an English radio programme that's been going for about 60 years where guests are given the same question. My choice, I think it would be the famous diary of a man called Samuel Pepys. I don't know how well known he is in the States. It's probably the best diary in the English language. It's nine, nine volumes. So. <laughs> but he was, he was about 50 years after Taylor's time. But he had a wonderful range of... Um, lives, if you like, family life, the theatre life, the world of music, the world of politics. He was like, like Taylor in one sense, and that he had this appetite for life and, and a kind of amphibian. He, he operated in the world of the casual pub, the alehouse, but equally he's at home in Parliament and in the world of the court and knows the king very well. So he can sort of cross these social boundaries in a way that was very rare in that period. Taylor did it in one way, and Samuel Pepys does it in another. It's a wonderful source if people aren't familiar with it. It sounds like a wonderful choice for sure, and certainly very interesting, something you could go back to again and again, because it does contain just a wide variety of, of fun things to discover about the time period. I think that's a great choice for sure. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, I've recently finished a, a new book on a rather different topic uh, is about British slaves who were captured by 
the Barbary Corsairs of North Africa and taken off into slavery in North Africa. And this is a book that tells all their stories and attempts for them either to escape or to, to be rescued, redeemed. And that's coming out uh, this year in late spring or, or early summer. That's fantastic. Hopefully we can have you back again to share that story with us. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bernard Cap, for being here and walking us through the history of John Taylor, the water poet. This has been a really fun conversation. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure, Cassidy. In our show today, Bernard Cap mentioned some links to the original documents and writings of John Taylor that inform us most about John Taylor's life. These, along with the most important work on John Taylor, is probably Bernard's monograph on John Taylor. It's the entry he did on him in the New Oxford Dictionary of National Biography. To access this online, only college viewers who have a university login will be able to access them there. But I did want to mention that your library can usually get you a copy of these, even if you don't have a university login. You can take the entries that we'll show you in our show notes page to your librarian, and you can get a copy to read there through interlibrary loan. Also, you will want to check out Bernard Capp's book, which we will also link to in the show notes for today, along with a book called John Taylor Travels and Traveling 1616 through 1653 and contains reprints of many of John Taylor's travels. We will link to all of these resources as well as this explanation again so that you can have it in the show notes for today's episode. Find all of this at castycash.com slash episode 208. That's castycash.com slash EP208. As I mentioned at the start of our show, for patrons of this episode, we have packed bonus history content, including woodcuts, primary documents, portraits, and printable resources that coordinate with the show right inside these regular show notes. You can unlock these extras as a supporter of our show using the giant Patreon button right on our regular show notes page. When you log in or sign up as a patron using that button, the detailed show notes immediately expand right there on the same page and you can see them as well as all of the detailed show notes we offer for our entire library of over 200 episodes here at that shakespeare life you can sign up in the show notes for today or go directly to patreon.com slash that shakespeare life and sign up today to get these and all the great benefits of supporting our show If you enjoyed our show today, be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform and share the show with someone who might enjoy learning something new about Shakespeare. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.